1: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan jarrett Brian of Channel 4 News, and David Priest, the columnist and coach. You don't need to be a genius to work out that London might be a little lively on Friday. The Tartan Army are in town, tickets or no tickets for Wembley. For many, the old-school rivalry between England and Scotland will be the best bit About the European Championship. Will we have another dentist chair moment? Who knows? It's the sort of match that could defy form and logic. Now, managers talk about playing the game and not
2: the occasion, David. How difficult is that as a player? I think on some occasions, yeah, it it can be very difficult, especially just sort of after the game kicks off and you, you get caught in the emotion of it all. But certainly in the build-up, I think it's what Gareth Southgate will be doing is, is trying to focus on the processes of what they're trying to do in the game, what's their game plan, and just focus on solely on that. I think even though probably now or in recent years more than ever, there's been a far bigger gap than there used to be between the England and Scotland sides in terms of quality. And I think that what Gareth will be drumming into them as well is, is, is a sense of not being complacent, too many times managers can get a couple, certainly a club level can be caught up in sort of we've got to match them for effort or we've got to be up for the fight and, and, and all this rhetoric. When really it, it's, Gareth now will, will just be saying to them that we have to focus on what we're doing. We've had to focus on what our game plan is. And then they shouldn't need to be at this level and, and, and this, this occasion. They shouldn't be needed to, to have any sort of extra motivation on top of that. Uh, and, I, and I hope I'm not doing Scotland sort of a, a disservice by, you know, sort of saying that about the, you know, the England's guarding against complacency because we know in these games that they can be a bit of a leveller sometimes and, and, you know, Scotland can raise their game. And, and they certainly have got their the threats of their own. But uh, I think anybody, you know, any any third party looking from the outside would, would, would definitely say that, and I have to admit that England have more quality and you know, big favourites for the game.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, there has been a you know, nationwide hyper alert, I suppose. Jordan, how relevant is this sort of rivalry? Is it a bit of a throwback to less elitist, you know, more narrow times?
3: <laughs> Interesting question. I think in footballing terms, the relevance of this fixture is lesser than it was maybe 15, 20 years ago. I think the relevance of this particular encounter comes from things beyond football. So I think that the kind of um, the dynamics of the two countries politically and culturally with the independence has happened in recent years on the independence referendum. The two countries approaches to, to COVID and Brexit. I think those are the things that I think that there's a relevance there on the pitch. I mean, I, I'm just going to say it. I think England should be winning this game 4-0. And I know that will be highly offensive to many Scottish (laughs) listeners here. And I'm not trying to be offensive, but I think that the, the, the relevance on the pitch, I think Scotland's role of these European championships has been massively inflated. Whenever I hear a team discussed and you hear the phrases, lots of heart and spirit and fan base so much, I always think to myself, You can't be that good (laughs) if that is your biggest strength. I'm sorry, but you can't be that good. And my concern for Scotland, as in if I were Scottish, would be that they didn't play that badly against Czech Republic and lost 2-0. But there was a lot of commitment. There was a lot of spirit. What next? What next? Because I know they may be bringing in Tierney who won't be fully fit for this England game. But my concern would be you've kind of shown us your hand with what you've got in terms of spirit, guts and work ethic. The quality I don't think is there. So I think in terms of your, your question, the relevance on the pitch, I, I, I if I'm Gareth Southgate, similar to, to David, I, it's difficult because England are halfway through. They're pretty much through. So do you go down the road of, all right, boys, We don't have to win this game. Don't get caught up in the battle tour. Don't get caught up in the emotion. Control the game. Worst case, a draw is not the end of the world. Or do you say... We're much better than them. Go and show them we're better than them. Go and take control of the group, win the game, and let's get this group done and dusted. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what what approach he will take, but I think it's definitely a, an opportunity for the England team to put a marker down for the tournament. If they were to put a 4 5 nil down here, I think Scotland aren't great, granted, but I think that that really announces England as like, okay, these guys aren't really here to play games. Yeah, I suppose
1: what's interesting, we talk about tournament teams, don't we, Dave, but also there are tournament managers. In that context, do you expect Gareth Southgate to take a longer view here and maybe make some changes from the opening game?
2: Yeah, I do. I think if, you know, rather than making changes in that, I mean, he could still make more changes in the, uh, for the Czech Republic game. But I also think that rather than putting what he deems a stronger side out first game, stronger side out second game, and then sort of make changes for the third. I think they'll probably make changes this game. Because, he, one, he can, because, you know, we know the, the the talk that has been about the likes of Jack Grealish being left out. So it, it's, it's not a case of weakening your side, really. It's just bringing in different players who give you a different option. Now, I know for a fact that Gareth Southgate will, of his time as England manager, will have studied what it takes to get far in tournaments, what other teams have done, what other approaches other teams have, have taken in Euros and in World Cups to kind of get through to, uh, to the last stages relatively unscathed? I think the other day I said about, made the analogy about Tim Henman at, uh, at Wimbledon, you know, how he go five sets early in the tournament and was shattered by the end of it. He wants to guard against that and try and bring some freshness in early on in the tournament to keep the freshness for the rest of the, the tournament, should they go further. He has to do that and it'd be wise to do that.
3: I think it's a good point David makes there But I I disagree I think that He won't make many changes I think the only change He may make Is Phil Foden I think he may look At Phil Foden And think He was flagging a little bit In the the latter part Of that first game He's young We've won the first game There's no pressure He might bring in A greedist I think he'll keep Trippier at left back I don't think He will want to be seen to be... He, he seems to be a man that's kind of in his own head and he's, he's, he's got he has got his own mind about what he wants to do. I think, despite the fact that there were some boring parts of that first game, I think Southgate would be quite pleased with that first game and the performance. So I think you'll think... You could argue Croatia are better than Scotland. In, I know they've got less motivation because of the derby element of it, but they're better than Scotland. So if we beat Croatia with that team, why tinker with it too much unless there's injuries? So I, I don't foresee many changes, if any, at all.
2: I think, well, I think it's just probably boiled down to, you know, we're talking about Gareth being a, a, a tournament manager. And rather than sort of, maybe he's in the past, I think we probably could be guilty of trying to build a sort of solid side together and keeping the same team together and playing it all the way through the tournament. So, like, you know, you, you build some sort of chemistry and relationship with the players and, and momentum. and But I think now because, he, you know, he, the way that he looks at it, he will see it's a different proposition. So while Sterling and, and Forden were threats in behind and, and, a, and a certain type of threat, maybe it's this time, you know, Scotland aren't going to give us the space in behind that Croatia would do. And that's, like so Jack Raelish, there's going to be integral into breaking down that Scotland defence because he'd be receiving the ball deeper and he has to break the lines with the ball rather than with passes. Mm.
1: Oh, it's interesting you, you talk there about Kieran Trippier, Jordan, because. You know, I've got a hunch he might actually transfer him over to right back. You know, irrespective of what decision he takes on him, it just shows how important a senior pro like that is in the context of a, a longer tournament. I thought it was really significant that Tyrone Ming spoke after the Croatia game about how Trippier talked him through that first game. So that's the value in that sense. While we stay with a defense. Do you think, Jordan, that it is the time to gamble with the fitness of Harry Maguire, or do you wait another game?
3: I'd wait. I'd wait. As I said, I don't think... And I'm sounding really harsh here. I just don't think Scotland have much up top. I'm not a Tyrone Mings fan. I thought he was brilliant against Croatia. I thought he was really good and was rightfully lauded. I'm not a fan of his, but I think he's good enough... And he's earned the right to be able to start again against Scotland. So I personally would wait. I know there's news this morning that, that M- Maguire's declaring himself fit. That for me and David's a player, so he can to t- say more than me. But whenever a player says that, it makes me think, are you really fit? Or you just is that your heart telling you, telling us that you want to play and you're ready to go? I don't think we have to play Maguire or risk him in this game. I think if we win this game and we're through, then you've got as they say, a free hit against Czech Republic. Play him in that game. Use that as the kind of ease in game, if you like, for the rest of the tournament. But but no, I I I wouldn't risk him. I don't think we need to. Yeah. Element of the smoke screen there, Dave? Yeah, possibly.
2: I mean, like like Jordan was saying about, you know, whether he is fully fit or not. So I think you have two types of players. You have one type of player who's so desperate to play, they'll play... Even when they're just they're just about fit, but not quite fit enough for competitive games at an international level, or you have the ones that are, are always unsure and need to be guided by the physio whether they're going to play or not. And in some ways, you know, like you know, he's an old fashioned type that's that just wants to play no matter what. But England have got to be very clever about this, and I agree with Jordan. You know, why risk him now when you can give him a little bit more time to recover and, and to to strengthen his ankle. And, and give him a game where, yeah, we, we, there's not so, so much of a need for us to to win the game.
3: And if and if I'm correct in my assertion that I think England win this game 4-0, bring him on on 70 minutes. You mm. know, if you get 3-0 up, then bring him on for the last 20 minutes or so. But I, I just don't, I'm not a Maguire fan, but I just think that he's England's best centre-back. I just don't think you need to risk him in this game. So, so, so why chance it?
1: Mm. It's interesting that Marcus Rashford has been taking his... Yeah, you know, roll in front of the the media this week. Obviously, talking up the nature of of the Scotland game. He's he's saying it's one of the biggest that we play, one of the games that we remember for the rest of our careers, which might be overegging and putting a little bit. <laughs> a little but,
3: bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, I suppose Jordan on on the on Marcus Rashford and the broader impact that he's made. It's just about a year now since he made his intervention in the child hunger debate. What has he proved about professional footballers in that time do you think
3: that the old adage of just shut up and bounce the ball I think it was in this in the states 30 years ago is dangerous and actually you know harmful I think that what he's proved is that he's a human being he's proved that he's a human being and he has the same thoughts and fears and concerns and inspirations and wanting to help as me you and David. He's proven that he's a human being and he's proven that despite his huge wealth and his significant youth, he's in a position to help help others. And you, you're never going to find a bigger supporter of Marcus Rashford than, than me. I, I I always say, I think it's really underestimated what this man has done. I think we it's really, really underestimated what he's done. He has taken on the government and won. He has done something that certain politicians can't do. He's done something that Boris Johnson's own backbenchers can't get him to do. People on his side. I think think he's a phenomenal young man. and, And I think that that shouldn't be missed in the discussion around the influence that footballers can have. And my dream, my dream is this. England to get to the final. Marcus Rashford or Raheem Stone to score the winner in the 90th minute and then take the knee. And I'm going to see all those people that are booing, taking the knee. I want to see how they react then. Are they going to continue to cheer because Marcus Rashford has won us the Euros or are they going to be like, no, boo, boo, boo? That's my dream. But I accept that I'm. it's a stretch. It's a stretch. <laughs> Do you
2: know what I find funny about all this situation as well? It's that it's the very same people that when you have Wayne Rooney or any footballer, but particularly I remember about Wayne Rooney looking down the cam- uh, the lens of the camera and swearing down there and people being outraged, oh, he's a role model, he shouldn't be doing this for kids. Yet when they do something that's used for good, then it's, <laughs> it, it, even now, I mean, you, you say about 30 years ago, even now politicians are saying, oh, I should concentrate on playing football, you know, mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's those exact same people who have this exact opposing argument, it's, yeah, it's crazy.
1: Well, amen to your thought, Jordan. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I suppose the other thing is, if we talk about leaders, Harry Kane is a different type of leader. But is he almost, does he represent an incipient dilemma, do you think, Jordan? Because, you know, here's someone, only two goals in 10 games, or the last 10 games for England. There is a sense almost that he's no longer untouchable. Do you expect him to to answer any critics that might be around?
3: You know what? I, with Harry Kane, and this is coming from an Arsenal fan, <laughs> I, I trust Harry Kane. I feel very safe when when I watch Harry Kane that he might have a bad game, he might not score a goal. But over the course of a season, over the course of a tournament, his his catalogue of work and his... Ability to lead, as you say, in the way that he leads. He's not a shouter and a screamer and a grabby by the shirt. Let's go, lads. He's a leader in the kind of David Beckham sense, I say, which is his actions on the pitch... I trust him that he will he will do what needs to be done to get to get England as far as possible. I, I never think it's healthy for players to feel untouchable. I think there needs to be even if you're Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, and for what it's worth, I think Ronaldo's the untouchable nature around Ronaldo. I think could backfire on Portugal later on, but that's a different discussion. But I think all players, I think all people need to know that. You are not untouchable. You are our best player. You are our captain. But I thought it was really significant that he was substituted in that first game. Now, after the collision with the post, Southgate may say precaution that I want to protect him. It didn't. I didn't think it was that bad from what I saw, but he subbed his captain and his star player. And I think just that kind of little nudge, if it was from Southgate, that look, you've not played well today, mate. And if you don't play well, you can and will be subbed. I, I think it's really, really important for a player to, to know that, that they are not untouchable.
1: Yeah, I think it is pretty significant that Gareth Southgate, he isn't afraid to make the difficult, unpopular decision, which I think is it does say a lot about the depth of his character. I want to just, if I could... David, talk about the guy that you see alongside him quite regularly on the touchline. His number two, Steve Holland. You know, With your experience of, of coaching as part of a group, how important is the role of someone like Steve Holland to the bigger picture?
2: Well, he's, he's massively important. I think what's sometimes, especially in football, we forget is that coaching is teaching, you know, and, and <clears throat> where a, a manager... It possibly has to deal with you know something that's more all-encompassing and and perhaps more on a, on a personal level with with players and with relationships. The guy who, yeah, you know, I'm not sure whether he put still puts the cones out. Steve Holland, I'm sure he does. But the guy who puts the cones out and puts the sessions and delivers the sessions, he's so vital to to what they want to do as a team. You know, it's. You can always say that anybody can put a drill on, anybody can put a session on, but somebody who can deliver it in a way that is received and people understand it, and it, it's so vital. And that's probably, you know, it's obviously his his huge quality. Is that is the is the he he can teach players, they learn under him, and, and, the, and the fact that he's so highly regarded by so many managers who are highly regarded themselves. I think it's it's it just shows the the, the stature of of the man and. And and another thing it shows is that, you know, I think it's great that he possibly they hasn't been tempted into into going as his own man. I think a lot of people, a lot of coaches, and a lot of very good coaches, they get tempted and think, well, I, you know, I can do that job and do the top job, and and then they lose themselves in it and they lose themselves in or lose the the great coach that they were because they, they, there's so many things come from the outside and that they've got to worry about and think about. And I think that's, you know, it's great credit in me seen that, you know, he's a very good coach. This is what I'm brilliant at. And, and this is my role that I'm going to take forward.
1: Yeah, it's interesting looking at another Chelsea alumnus, Steve Clark, Scotland manager. He was criticised, wasn't he, Jordan, for for actually a, almost a cautious selection in the opening game. You've talked about, Tierney coming back, and it it does seem that his fragility is a bit of a worry both for club and country. I suppose is all we can expect from Steve Clarke what he can get, actually extract the best he can from what, as you implied earlier on, is a a limited squad?
3: Yes, yes. I I think that... I actually like Steve Clarke, and I've always liked him. I don't quite know why, but I've always always liked Steve Clarke. I think he conducts himself really well. I think he's a decent, solid football manager that has, you know, wherever he's been, as far as I'm aware, had had decent to good results. I I, I don't feel that Scotland team is anything particularly special in terms of personnel. So I think what you have to do, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of teams in this Euros in that kind of band of you know, okay teams with two or three really good players. It's just unfortunate for Scotland that they're two or three good players are both left-packs, mm-hmm. um, which, which is really unfortunate for them. But yeah, I think what he needs to do is keep Scotland in games. There's a lot of nations, I would say, you're not going to batter anybody. You're not going to... It's unlikely you're going to cause an upset by being the better team. It's that kind of thing of just stay in the game, stay in the game, and you'll get a moment. And I think if he can keep so- Scotland solid... And for this 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 game on Friday, if they can still be in the game come seventy minutes. You just never know. And I think that what what I would advise, if he's listening to this podcast, him to do is to set up a team that's just hard to beat. And they may have to trade off the old, you know, stereotypes of, you know, battle-hardened and, you know, you know, war-friendly and digging in and all that sort of stuff. You know, give it to England. They may have to mix it up a little bit and throw England off their game that way. But I think that what they don't want to do is get to get to half-time and they're 3-0 down. So I think the best tactic for them is to have, a, have, a, have a, a team and a game plan that enables them to be hard to beat, where the, where teamwork is, is, is the star player, if you like.
1: Yeah, well, I'm told he listens to us during his long nights <laughs> of the too. soul. Me too. <laughs> Wales, David. To quote Mark Hughes, no longer little Wales. That's a pretty fair summary, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, you look over the last two tournaments, you've got you've got to give them a lot of credit. You know, coming from not qualifying for such a long time—was it 1950 the last time they qualified for a, for a tournament? Uh, and they, they, they've just maybe not surprised everyone with a result yesterday. Of course not, because you know of, of previous to- uh, Euro experience. But I, I just li- li- like them as a team simply because when you you know we, we, we spoke about Scotland as well, and Scotland probably. L- Yeah, Robertson and Tierney are probably superstars, but they're lacking someone of a real elite, you know, like Gareth Bale. And he's obviously the talisman. And and what you get in a lot of international sizes, you get players who are the best player at their clubs and you get them, you know, and once they go to to international level, then they have, obviously they have their own egos as well, but also they want, you know, they still feel like they want to be the the star man and, and, and whatever. Well, Wales haven't got that you know a lot of the Wales team aren't the best players at their clubs you know a lot of their players are used to taking that sort of not maybe it's not a backseat role but like a secondary role where they're more workmanlike and when you've got likes of Aaron Ramsey and you've got Gareth Bale and then you've got everything else set up behind them who are working hard to make sure that they've got the best chance to show their qualities on the pitch you know it's a great recipe for success and I thought they were well deserving of the of the win against Turkey. It was um, you know the the, the the two chances that Aaron Ramsey had before he actually scored. You know, come by the same way Gareth Bale sort of playing that deeper role and just and and showing that uh, he's more than just pace, power, and finishing. You know, Yeah, I was really impressed by them all.
1: Yeah, I suppose what we're talking about is a manifestation of teen spirit, which was obviously first shown up in in 2016 on Gareth Bale. Jordan you know as you say he's obviously The catalyst for this A very Underrated almost misunderstood Character I always felt Do we see the real Gareth Bale When he's leading his Country I noticed you know he was When he called them all together After the game yesterday and into The huddle and he addressed it You know it was the usual effing and Jeffing but there was a real passion in his delivery. And that really, that sort of answers the stereotype of Gareth Bale as being a bit dull. Uh,
3: yeah, I, 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 yes, yes. I, I think it probably does to, to some degree. I think that a lot of... It's, it's interesting when people talk about Gareth Bale and they have done for the last few years about his affinity to, to Wells and playing for his country and whether he's at Madrid or Spurs, Wells is... Is the is is the place where he feels most at home, and they talk about Paul Pogba as well being a different player for France, as opposed to uh, you know United. There's something I think in that, and I think for Gareth Bell it might be because of, well I, I know that he because he, he said he's going back to play with people that he's been playing with since the under 15s, so they're his friends, they're his mates, so it's it's enjoyable, and I think England can and are learning. I think. A lesson from that, that, that as well. I don't think he's the most charismatic, and interesting person. But at the same time, I don't think he's dull. I don't think he's dull. I think I do think he gets a little bit of a harsh, a harsh rep. I, I, I think he's a phenomenal player, and I, 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 I've got a sneaky feeling. A sneaky feeling. He might retire this summer. I've just got this gut feeling that he might he might tap out after this year. Just just, just, a, just a feeling of mine in my gut. But yeah, I, I do feel he gets a little bit of a harsh ride at certain times. I think that the element of him not leaving Madrid and canceling his contract, you know, there were calls of him being a mercenary. And if he's not if he's not playing, why would you stay? Well, I'm, I I was with him on that one. I believe that if you're an employee at, at, at a company, why should you cancel your contract? Yes, I love playing football, but no, I've worked hard to get this level and be paid this wage. Why should I just walk away from that? I do feel he gets a little bit of a harsh rep at times. And I think we're seeing his character and his spirit in in a Welsh shirt more than than, than any other shirt, to be honest.
1: Yeah, the thing that strikes me about Wales is that almost necessity has been the mother of invention in terms of because they've got a, a lower number of players from which to choose... Players tend to be picked earlier. So Gareth Bale made his full debut at 16, Aaron Ramsey 17, Ethan Ampadu at 17, Dan James at 19. Having said all that, David, I want to return to the point that you made about almost unsung heroes within that team. I'd like your assessment, please, of Danny Ward. Now, here's someone who was a second-choice goalkeeper at Leicester. He's been a star, hasn't he?
2: Yeah, uh, and it always amazes me with goalkeepers you know that come in from the, from the, the sidelines, they're not playing at club level and yet they perform brilliantly for their countries because it's such a hard thing to do. When you're out of you know you haven't got that game practice, you're not used to, to playing games. you can do as much training as you want. But when it comes into game situations, it's hard to replicate you know exactly what happens in the game in training sessions because of the, you know, sometimes the lack of intensity and because of, even just by the crowd being there and it can be affected, but it does not looked affected at all. I thought he was great last night, he was solid, made a, a great save late on. And I, and I think it's it's credit to him and, and the and the backroom staff. And, and I know there's, there's maybe not too much we can say around this, but the fact that, you know, they've lost their manager, you know, and we know what's happened to Ryan Giggs now. and. They've managed. They've managed to keep everything together and not let that affect them, as a, as a squad as well. I think it's great credit uh, to Rob Page and to, uh, to the, all the the backroom staff as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Jordan. You you mentioned Paul Pogba in passing there. I suppose if we're looking to make a review of the first week, you can't look beyond France in terms of the teams which have been really impressed. I suppose what really brought it home to me. About what a, almost a complete team they are was just their willingness to graft. Mm. You know, someone like Griezmann absolutely put the proverbial shift in. That tells me that this is a team, not just of all talents, but the temperaments right as well
3: yeah and that that's a concern for a lot of the bets that I've got out because i 've tipped Italy <laughs> from the get go to win this euros and i've got some big bets of a lot of people out, and i wasn't expecting I, I, was, I was expecting the talent and the skill. And the the tactical nous, if you like, from Deschamps to come from France. What I wasn't expecting is, as you say, is that Griezmann was pretty much at fullback for most of that game, just tracking and supporting and doubling up. That's something that I didn't I didn't foresee. And I think that was something that I remember with the, with the great Barcelona team of ten years ago. That the, the most impressive thing for me wasn't Barcelona when they had the ball; it's when they didn't have the ball. That for me was the was the most Kind of noticeable thing when they didn't have the ball. I think Pep Guardiola had the what's the eight second rule? You have to get the ball back within eight seconds. And France are, are the same is when they don't have the ball, then they're not as pressing as that Barca team were. But there's definitely a work rate and a work effort to get back into shape, to double up, to support to the point where I think it might have almost taken something away from their attacking, you know, game plan as well. But you know, the first game of the tournament. Against a team like Germany, I guess it's just just get the three points on the board and one big one big team ticked off. So yeah, I, I think the, the the bigger worry for, for everyone else in the competition should be not the, the not the the skill level that they have. It's the kind of team and work ethic that they that they displayed in that in that Germany game that I think will be the bigger concern for for teams that thought they might have a chance of winning this competition.
1: Yeah, we can look at you know the pace of Mbappe, which is you know, self-evident and pretty ridiculous. You can look at, I think, Varane, who's is, is, is emerging as a, as a world-class defender. If we have to look for any weakness, Dave, and I realise I'm probably being hideously unfair here, do you think it's Lloris in goal?
3: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, no,
2: I don't actually, you know, I mean, I've probably said before in here that I'm a huge fan of his, like, you know, and, and I think there's there's been a lot of high-profile mistakes from him over the last few years in a franchise, most notably in the World Cup final. But also, he's, he's still a high-quality goalkeeper that's, um, you know, especially shot stopping, from a shot-stopping point of view, he's, he's uh, every season in the Premier League, he's always in the top three. So, I, I think if you do see that, if you do see that's the one weakness that they've got, it just shows you how strong they are on the rest of the pitch.
3: Sorry, can I just kind of add to that? I I said yes because I've never been convinced about Hugo Lloris. I I think... David says that he's probably in the top three for for for, for shots saved, and David's my go to person when it comes to anything goalkeeping. So I defer to him 100% on this, and I could be talking absolute crap. But he may be in the top three for, for shots saved the last handful of years in the Premier League. I reckon he'll probably be in the top three, top five for most gaffes every year as well in the Premier League. I don't, and that's the reason for me why. And I know David gets really upset when people kind of talk about <laughs> gaffes because you know I've not been in goals. I don't know. I don't know what it's like. And what I say is a gaff. Maybe David would say is a, is a, is a fair is a fair goal to be scored. But the reason why I've never been convinced by Hugo Lloris is because he'll in the same game he'll make the the save of the season. And then he'll do something absolutely, insanely, embarrassingly bad. And for me, the best goalkeepers, and again, I defer to David on this one, for me, the best goalkeepers are the ones, especially now now in in this age, are the ones that make minimal mistakes. Every goalkeeper will, will make a gaffe at some point in the season. Even the keepers that win the leagues probably will. They'll make one. But the but it's I don't judge keepers on how many saves they make. I may, I judge keepers now the elite keepers on how many mistakes they make, and he makes a gaff a month, and that for me for me discounts you from being an elite goalkeeper. David, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me.
1: Well, just before he does, um, <laughs> you know, there's a phrase I, I bet that you're familiar with, David, which is he's got a rick in him, and I, th- I you know I do I do get what Jordan is talking about. To be honest.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, there's no denying about the mistakes he's made as well. But I mean, I think if you look at the players he's played with, and, and the respect that you have for him, I think that says a lot more than what you know what any of us as, as outside sort of viewers can you know can deliver a, a verdict on him because they, they trust him, and when he does make mistakes, that you know it's more than just being about a well liked character in the dressing room. If people. He's trusted on the on the field as well, and and I think that a lot of the times when you when you are you know when you're making saves and you're either keeping the team in a game or saving them points or, or actually if you're one 0 up and you're winning them, the games with your saves, then you build up a lot of credit in the bank with the uh, with the players that you're playing with as well. So I think from that perspective, I think he's uh, I think there wouldn't there wouldn't be many players who's played with him who, who would say that they they didn't trust him as a goalkeeper. Mm.
1: Let's switch to managers for a second, if we could, Jordan. Managers under pressure. Senol Gunez of Turkey. Now, he took Turkey to third in the 2002 World Cup. But he's a veteran of club football in Turkey. And he knows it is an absolutely unforgiving environment. After two defeats, he's toast, isn't
3: he? I think he's done. I think he's done. And I think what's not helped him as well and how much the Turkish Federation, or indeed himself, have paid attention to this, is there was a widespread thought that Turkey were the dark horses in this competition. And I think that when you're talked up as the dark horses, and you haven't even scored a goal yet, I believe, they've not scored a goal yet. Yeah, that that that, that doesn't look particularly good. Um, I don't think they've been... Bad in the two games that I've seen. I just feel they've 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 been a bit blunt. I know that their forward, forgive me, I forgot his name. Ilmas. is about seventy eight years old. Yeah, uh, and at, at times he he looks it. Yeah, I I I think he's in trouble. I think that uh, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but if they win their final game, they could still qualify as the third best. But even with three points, you you're, you're kind of clutching a little bit there. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's dismissed come the end of the Euros.
1: What about Luis Enrique at Spain, David? There's a number of things about him being questioned. His his selection, his personality, his in-game management. Uh, again, a little bit like Turkey, Spain and their media know how to stick the knife between the shoulder
2: blades, don't they? Yeah, yeah they certainly do. And I, and I think that um, obviously every, everyone in Spain has been expecting uh, to turn Sweden over. But at the same time, you look at the performance, you know, they created more than enough chances to win the game. Having said that, you know, Sweden had chances of their own. I think the way that the game worked out, you know, it was it, you know, possession in the 70s, a percentage that it was in the 70s? Sweden will be happy with that. They're a great out-possession side. They're disciplined, 4 4 2 all the time. They know their jobs inside out. And they have a little bit of quality to create problems. But again, like I said, it's you know a manager can only do so much, and I think you know regardless of the personnel that was played, they still they're not the the side of ten years ago. You know they don't have the personnel of ten years ago, but they certainly have the personnel to beat Sweden. But you got to give credit credit to Sweden as well. But the way way they played, I quite I quite like the way that they played, the intensity that they played played with, and again the chances are created were were good enough to win the games. But you know you look at. Them, Maratta again, same old problem with him, you know, that it, he, he misses guilt edge chances and you know, as a manager, there's there's only so much you can do. You can't you can't put the ball in the back of the net for the players,
3: you know. Spain's an interesting one because I remember listening to the radio a few few days ago ahead of their first game and they had um, a very well-known Spanish journalist talking to the presenter and the presenter asked him, you know, we've discussed Italy and and France and Portugal, no one's talking about Spain. And the the journalist said, I've spoken in the last 24 hours to the manager Luis Enrique about this and he said oh yeah that's um that's how we like it that's that's fine that's fine and the, and the journalist also said that you know he, f- he found it weird that no one's speaking about Spain and my thought was it's not weird if you look for that Spanish squad it's not very good it's not it's, there's, there's not many good players in that Spanish squad there's 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 some good players in that squad. But I don't think it's weird at all that we're not talking about Spain. And as David says, if your main man up top is Morata, you're in big trouble. So I, 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 I think Luis Enrique is working with a generation of players that aren't awful. But when I was looking for their squad, the other was thinking, I could pick out maybe four really top players. And one of them was was, was Tiago Alcantara, who doesn't even start for them. So I, I, I find it weird that there's this notion that we should be speaking about Spain when actually the reality is it's not a great squad.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I, lo- I love Pedri, you know, only 18, and, and I mentioned it on the pod star, last week, yeah. you know, and uh, there is a touch of, of Iniesta about him, I feel. Let's switch it to Germany, David, if we couldn't, and, and Yogi Love The group do seem united. You know, there's always politics usually around the German football camp. They didn't seem really to have much penetration against the French. Do you think, we really expected them maybe to make a bit better use of the ball and, and, and find a bit more space, or am I again being too harsh?
2: I think this is probably not the game to judge them on. Like I said, they're playing against France. France, I think it was two goals they had um, chalked off because of uh, due to yeah. VAR as well. So, yeah. you know, France were probably as well deserved winners. It was, I mean, for me, it was closer than I, than I thought it was going to be. They kept in the game, and, and, and sometimes it. it you know we look at spain there about their lineup and you think well it's it's not actually you know compared to the to the other teams in the tournament other elite teams that it's not actually you know up with them but with germany they still have a little bit of that they they still have some big names in there they still have players who are, are performing at the highest level real highest level and i think that's with france other night it just kept, it's, it's almost like somebody trying to Keep uh, up with uh, like uh, you know somebody who's not who was quicker than them, you know. They all they were just always trying to, they were, they were never quite up with them all the time, you know, and they just sort of falling behind and they're trying to keep up rather than being with those top teams, Just trying to keep up them a little bit, and I think this. I mean, they still have threats, you know. They still had you know the bring off the bench. It was Sarnia, Timo, Werner, threats coming off the bench. So they still have a really good squad. But like I said, I don't think this is the game to judge them on really.
3: I I think Germany's problem is going to be the fact that you're blunt up front to some degree anyway. And Sane and Timo Werner have not had great seasons this season. So if they're the guys you're bringing on to try, and I'm I'm, my favourite player in Europe is Leroy Sane. I love him. Mm -hmm. I actually love him. I'm just obsessed with the guy. I think he's mad talented. But the reality is, is that he's not, He's not playing well. I think Germany, unlike Spain though, do have really good players in across that squad. If they get out of this group, I think they're the team that are gonna be the most angry because they've been written off. And if we know one thing about Germany, you'd never ever write off Germany. They've been rubbish since 2018 World Cup, granted, but if they can somehow get out of that group, I think they may they may garner a spirit that makes them think, all right, you know what? Now we're out of the group. We've got past France and Portugal and that, that, that out of the way let's go sort of thing. But I think what may end up hurting them is that bluntness up front.
1: Yeah, I realise I'm probably offering a bit of a hostage to fortune here, but I looked at Leroy Sane and I wondered whether he will actually end up being one of those players who have never quite fulfilled themselves. You're right, Jordan, that he is mad talented, but I just wonder whether or not we will actually see the full blossoming of that talent. Jordan, But what I also want to do, I want to give you the... Opportunity to speak with your wallet here.
3: It won't be very long. <laughs> <take that> much. <laughs>
1: right, you know, you've obviously lumped into into Italy two players who really stood out for me, at least, both from Sassuolo, Dominico Baradi and Manuel Locatelli. Mm-hmm. They have been, I think, two of the stars of the tournament for me.
3: I, I totally agree. and They're players that i would seen a little bit. I'm not going to lie and say that I've been watching them for two years. I've seen a little bit of them pre, pre-tournament. pre And a, a, a couple of Italian friends of mine said to me, look out for these two. They, they could come out of this, this, this tournament as stars. But I think the one thing I've loved about Italy the most is that... For the first time in a long time, it seems like an Italian team that has that's coordinated. They know what they're doing. They 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 want to play play out from the back. They're very comfortable doing that. And this the, the amount of traps they set for Switzerland in playing out from the back to enable them to have so many chances in the final third, I thought was so intelligent. I think Mancini's an underrated manager. I don't know if he's quite in the Klopp PEP elite bracket of managers yet, but I think if he's not in the second tier below. And I, I, I really, I'm really backing them. The only thing that concerns me about the, the, the Italian team's chances, and they're my tip to win it, is seeing France play in third gear. I think Italy are playing at their best and they're playing very, very well. France got the job done without even playing that well. And that would be, for me, if I was an Italian the one concern is like we matched, I think you could put their performances on, on a par, but I think Italy are playing at the best. But yeah, to your question, those two players I think are going to, are going to garner huge interest across Europe amongst some of the best teams uh, you know across the continent.
1: Yeah. I suspect the same thing will happen to Alexander Isaac. And uh, now you obviously you know, know Swedish football really well, having worked there, David. What do you think the mood is in Sweden? You know, it seems that Isaac actually probably more than compensates for the loss of a declining Ibrahimović. Again, is he playing himself into a transfer from a, a dead at the moment?
2: Yeah, I mean, definitely going on his performance the other night, you know, he created two great opportunities for himself. And like I said, it, Swedish teams are four four two, very workmanlike. They all know them jobs. And Isaac in this team, he's the little bit of sugar. You know, he's a, he's, you know, and and I quite think I think it's it's quite a good thing that Ibrahimovic isn't there because it would take away from him. Now, sometimes he's been used as a bit of a target man when that's not really his role. He's more than just a target man. He, you know, he's got great pace, great skill, and, and I think that the, the fact that he's he doesn't have to live under the shadow of Ibrahimovic in this uh, in in this tournament, you know, and I mean he's flourished more. You know, and again, similar to the I mean, to the Wales team, I mean. The Swedish team have, you know, players playing all across Europe. You know, they have Russia's a great place for, for Swedish players to go. They, they t- tend to take a lot of Swedish players there in Serie a, all over Europe, in big clubs. So, you know, they, they do have the quality, but also, that, like I said, the they, they, they 4 2 they know what they're doing, and it can be that little bit of a difference if they're going, or he has to be that little bit of difference if they're going to win games. Mm.
1: We're going to have to mention Ronaldo, Jordan, you know, spe- oh, spe- a specialist in seizing the occasion. 106 international goals. Now three short of Ali Dai's record, which, let's face it, he's going to going to break it in this tournament, isn't he? It, it's difficult because Ronaldo attracts extremes, both of praise and criticism. Can you give me a middle ground? What you know, give me your assessment. Can he win this tournament for Portugal?
3: So I, I I made a very bold claim pre-tournament that I thought Portugal were going to bomb. Um, and I know they're, they're, they're some people's favourites and, and they have the second best squad in the tournament. My rationale for making that prediction was that I thought in the way that Ronaldo was the reason they won the Euros five years ago. I think he was a single reason they won the Euros five years ago. I know he came off in the final, I think it was, but I think he was the reason they won it. I thought that this time he would be the reason they don't win it. Because in previous years, it's been Ronaldo and the rest. They've not had the team to really complement one of the greatest players of all time. Whereas now they actually do have some really, really good players. And my concern was that they would still try and funnel everything through Ronaldo. And previously, I get why they did that whereas now they don't need to do that because you have other good players. But one thing I saw which made me look stupid in the first game was that actually they did the opposite of what I thought they were going to do. So what I was seeing was times where they should have passed to Ronaldo where they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Um, So I I, I think actually they've got, I I might have to row back on that really outlandish claim pre-tournament. And I I think he can win them the tournament if, if, He understands his role. And his role for me now is pure goal scorer. Don't ask for the ball wide. Don't try and beat two or three players. Just stay in the box and be that presence because Ronaldo in the box alone is going to occupy defenders, even without the ball. So I think if he understands that for us to win this tournament, I've just got to be a Harry Kane. Or Lewandowski, I've just got to be a guy in the box that's going to finish, don't need to get involved in build-up play, then yes, I think Portugal can... can He can lead Portugal to, to, to retaining their title.
1: Yeah, I notice you nodding quite vigorously there, David.
2: Yeah, simply because, you know, like Jordan said, you know, it's been all about him and, and if, if they were going to win anything, it had to go through him, when now it doesn't. And... It, 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 like Jordan said again it could go the other way because the, the players are so confident in themselves and know that they, they have the, that, qu- that kind of quality you know the, the, the time that Jota takes the shot when he could possibly slip Ronaldo in it wasn't the right decision but at the same time you know I think that's, that's what he's become you know over these past six seven years he, he just realised he's just about he's about the numbers and he realises that he he can trust the the, uh, the other ten players. He can leave it up to them and just be make sure that he's in the right areas at the right time. And uh, they are, yeah, they have great quality all, all the way through the side. I mean, the the only worry I have about the likes of Portugal and and Italy. I mean, I've been so impressed with Italy. They're just so un-Italian at the moment. Incisive, <laughs> di- direct, <laughs> playing with real energy and pace. My only worry is, and it'd be the same if if England were in that position, was that they just they're peaking too early, you know. Like we've talked about tournament football before, and it's very rarely that a team sets off on you know on fire in the first couple of games and,
3: and continues that all the way through the tournament. Just back on Ronaldo, I think the documentary that's come out in the last few weeks on the BBC. I I watched it, and I just think for all the criticisms that I think you can level at Ronaldo, one of the things that I just I'm I'm in awe of with when it comes to him, it's just the insatiable need to want to be better. He just seems to be relentless in I'm going to break all the record. New record, I'm going to break it. New record, I'm going to break it. And I think that is something that I think. I personally have a lot of respect for and drives me on it. It's just this self selfless need to just want to be the greatest of all time in every single area. I I, I respect it. I really respect it.
1: Yeah, you talk to people around the Real Madrid teams that he played in. Uh, that comes across really strongly. He's the guy on the plane back from a Champions League tie saying to his teammates, come back to my place. He's got a private gym, cryogenic chamber, he looks after himself. You know, someone told me that they were in the dressing room after winning the Champions League, came in off the pitch. Obviously, it was carnage within the dressing room, people taking taking photos with a trophy. And you had Ronaldo and Sergio Ramos walking around that dressing room saying, we're going to win it again next mm-hmm. year. And that is mm-hmm. minutes after they received it this year. That tells me everything I need to know about Ronaldo, I think. On the broader sense, David, I just want to look at the nature of the tournament and what that says about modern football. Do you think there's any real sense of jeopardy about this stage of the tournament when, let's face it, so many teams that finish third in their groups are going to get through?
2: Yeah, there is that. But I also think for for us as viewers and following the tournament, I think the more knockout stages they are, the better. That's where the real, the real entertainment comes. That's where the real drama comes. So, you know, if it means that we, you know, less teams are, are, are out in the group stages and more go through to, to a knockout stage, that's that's exactly what we want. You know, what I mean, it's, everyone wins in, in that circumstance, you know, but it's, um, Perhaps you know it, time will tell whether it does take away from this. You know the the next few games. Of course, the first game of every tournament in 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 all the groups from all the teams. There's always the excitement and the intensities there, and and once things settle down a bit, we might get it. You know, we might get a few drop games, but um, yeah. Once that's over, I think you know that's where the tournament starts.
1: Mm. Is that Jordan almost you know symptomatic of a wider issue about? You know, football will in danger of losing its edge simply because of almost financial and political expedience. You know, you only got to look at this bloated Champions League that we've got to look forward to in in twenty twenty four.
3: Yeah, I do, and I, I think I said on the, the last time I was on your podcast, Mike, that I, I'm just being honest. That the, the amount of games that we now have through the calendar, and I understand because of the because of the pandemic, there's had to be a truncated season where there's more games in a very shorter period of time. But it's 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 it's, it's to some degree put me off. I, I've not I've not watched every Premier League game or even wanted to watch every premier league game this 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 season because i i think when you have football every single day and you have you know during the euros it's a bit different because it's it's a, a one off one month tournament but i i think that there is a danger that the more the expansion of of these competitions is going to just we're going to just drown and 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 get football sick to some degree i don't care how passionate a football fan you are There's only so much we can take. And uh, people talk about the group of death, the the Germany, Portugal, France group. Well, it's not a group of death because those three teams will qualify. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) There's no jeopardy there. There's a very, very slim chance that Germany, France and Portugal won't get through. So that element of needing to win a game to qualify, I think means something. And taking that away, I, I think impacts on the quality of football and the, and the excitement levels as fans that we have for watching the sport that we love.
1: Yeah, I think one thing the tournament has, has given us was an absolutely enduring image of the need for player welfare. You know, the sight of Christian Eriksen's cardiac arrest and mercifully his subsequent recovery that had a special significance to you, didn't it, David?
2: Yeah, when I was in uh, when I was playing in in Denmark and with Odense, Christian was at the club. He was a, he was a sixteen year old at, at at Odense, and it's funny because he, he probably trained with us with with the first team at, at least once a week, sometimes twice, and even though he was such a talent at that age. I mean, he was a ridiculous talent. Even when he trained with the first team, you know, I will put this politely. He took, he took he took the Mickey out of out of players. He, he was playing, you know, he'd be playing against. This is, I mean, he's he's a slight guy anyway. You know, he's 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 not the biggest physically. Imagine him at sixteen when he's he's five foot five, and you know, he's, he 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 wasn't impressive physically. Where you know, a lot of players like to win. Rooney that. They're in that position because they're physically they're a man. He he wasn't. He was still a boy. But he was up against say, the likes of uh, internationals, you know, like Eric Jemba Jemba, who I know he, he gets a lot of stick from his time in England. But somebody who was a Cameroonian international, a very good player, strong, and he would make him look like a fool some some days. Yeah. So you know, for, from that year, I spent at Jordan, so, you know, spent a lot of time with him, and he was always going to be a special talent. He he was never involved in the second team. They wouldn't involve him in the first team simply because they knew he was just getting ready to leave to a big club. I think he had a chance to go to Real Madrid, Barcelona, Chelsea, and Ajax. And he took the Ajax route before his development because he knew that, you know, instead of taking the big leap from Odense to one of these big clubs, maybe like an Erdogan did, that he would take the one in between. And, and And it served him well. And, um so you know, watching those scenes, it was you know I wasn't actually watching the game because I was at a relative's house and I just saw something on uh, on Twitter and put the TV on straight away. Yeah, it was just it was a terrible thing to see, you know, and, and see to see his wife in you know in such a state at the side of the pitch, which obviously naturally she would be, and it it's um, it really strikes you. I mean, even if you you didn't have to know him to, for it to to hit you really hard, you know, it was it's just something that's. Something can happen in football, and different factions of football can, you know, can be affected by it. Where this is just something that affects everybody, and like you said, thank God that uh, that he's he's pulled through. And um, yeah, it, in many ways, you know, of course, you don't want to see, see that happen to anybody. But in many ways, you know, it's the way that his teammates reacted to him, and and the outpouring of emotion towards him, and afterwards, it just. It's great when something like that you see something like that happen, and all of football comes together, and all the world comes together.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well said. I just want to end, actually, Jordan, if I could, with a, with a a related issue in many ways. The example of Benjamin Pavard against Germany. He was he, he took two hits to the head. Was allowed to continue. Why isn't it that football, after all the evidence? And all the promise of protocols that they'll follow evidence that that followed that evidence of links to dementia. Why on earth aren't we still having temporary concussion substitutes to work it all out?
3: I don't know, Mike. Is is my honest answer? I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, my instinctive answer is always to kind of my default is to go where's the money, and is there a financial. Benefit to somebody or an organization to not, you know, um, uh, apply this, and I, I, don't want to believe that, but I, I genuinely don't, don't understand it. But what, I, what, I, what I will say is, is that if we don't start respecting the health and safety of of players, something really sad, and we, we almost, I mean, I know there was a bit of a, if you like, freak. Uh, uh, There's not no one was to blame to what as to what happened with Ericsson. but I think we're gonna have an example of where. Poor practice of protocols is going to really leave us with, with a tragedy. And I think that unless we relook really at this, and I think it goes to even, the, you mentioned earlier on the amount of games that, 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 that footballers are playing now. Again, David, you're, you're a former player. We mentioned before we started recording the fixtures coming out. Just this incessant games and plays for, for the—they for, must be knackered. But, they d- must be not only physically but mentally as well. It's been mentally strong, difficult. Sorry for for, the, for everybody. So sorry, David. Go on. Go on.
2: No, I, I was just going to say. I, th- I think it's something that that football and especially footballers at the high level have been caught up in now. That it's kind of like because of the money that they're earning, and then and and then obviously at the elite level, that they're demanding that they earn now. Then it's kind of like it's a. Um, it's a,
3: maximize it while you can.
2: Well, the, the, yeah, there is that, but also they're caught up in the game now. They they caught it's it's kind of a deal with the devil that where they, you know, they, they ha, you know they they have this much money. They earn this much money. Why are they earn this much money? Because of oh, all the money that comes in from TV deals. So they ha, they really feel. Obliged that they have to play all these games. There's no, there's never going to be any kickback because now it's that's the deal they've made. You're earning millions of pounds a year. This is what you've got to do for it now. And of course, it. it, it and of course, it, it, it's a the, the the past year and a half. It's a it's something that we've never experienced before with a pandemic, and it, it's something that's we you know we probably never have to deal with again. And it, it's you know these circumstances aren't, aren't normal, but. It's certainly, um, like I said, it's, it's a deal with the devil that we've made.
1: Yeah, well, it it really does seem end, endless at the moment. You know, the final of the Euros is on July the eleventh. The qualifying rounds of the Champions League begin nine days later. Now that involves some pretty substantial ties: Celtic against Mitchell PSV against Galatasaray. Now, surely we're reaching a point where players are going to say enough is enough. I get what you mean, David, that they're following the money and they have made that deal with the devil. The careers might be lucrative, but they will inevitably be shortened. I think they deserve greater protection, especially when the potential damage of things like concussion has been proven. It's a big subject. In the meantime, I just want to give thanks to Jordan and David for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writer's Podcast.